you pray with me? God, we thank you for laughter. We thank you for the chance to be gathered together here as your people, the body of Christ in this place that we call Lightshine. We just ask that you meet us here as we open up your word. If you're profitable to us, help us to follow you a little bit more closely. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so today we're going to kind of, Genesis takes this really sharp turn. It goes in a completely different direction. The narrative introduces the next kind of family member, Abraham's family tree, Isaac's son, Joseph, the dreamer, all right? And so I started looking at dreams, and I did a little bit of uh, research. And so, you know, scientists are constantly studying in the kind of experiments on human dreams. And the study of dreams, anybody know what that's called? I didn't know this. Onerology? Did I even say it right? Does that sound familiar? Onerology? The study of dreams? Um, and it's true, little is known about the kind of purpose of dreams, but one thing is pretty well known and pretty certain, that dreams that take place, even in our sleep, can greatly influence our outlook on life. Right? And this is just true. And so there was kind of one particular category of dreams that caught my attention. They're called epic dreams, Right? And so epic dreams, these are like life-changing dreams. Um, people actually wake up from these epic dreams, and they feel as if something in their life has changed, as if they've discovered something profound and amazing. And so while most of our dreams are kind of gone within minutes of waking, if you're anything like me, um, these epic dreams actually can remain with people for years to come, um, and they can shape things in people's future, right? And so dreams have often been credited with influencing these world-changing events. So I just picked a couple. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, right? Frankenstein, she conceived this idea after having the dream about this hideous monster that showed signs of life. She wakes up and she writes Frankenstein. Um, James Watson, Katie, DNA, okay? The guy who discovered the structure of DNA reported that the idea came to him in a dream after seeing spiral staircases, right? Just days before his assassination. Did you know that? I can't believe I taught you something about this. <laughs> Trust me, I can't say this very often. So I need to take full advantage of it when I... Normally, she's the one teaching me everything. Days before his assassination, President Abraham Lincoln reported a dream about this dead body that he saw in his sleep in which hundreds of people had gathered to mourn the loss of. And in this dream, a soldier told him that it was the body of an assassinated president days before he was killed. And so I took a look at Joseph's dreams. I wondered if this is not kind of exactly what had taken place with him, this kind of epic dream that's going to guide not only his future, but actually the future of this fledgling nation of Israel. And so the big question for us will be, where did Joseph's dream come from? And what was its purpose? And so we all have dreams, aspirations for our lives. Some of these dreams are realized. Others uh, never materialize. And I don't know about you, but I have some really crazy dreams, um, most of which I, man, I couldn't even share in a sermon. They're so wacky. You guys think I'm nuts. Um, but anyone here, now this, we've already, I've given you a clue to the answer to this question. Anyone want to venture a guess as to what God's dream for the world is? And here's the thing. There's no right or wrong answer here, right? So any ideas? What, is, what does God dream of for this world? Anybody? Yeah, Andrew. A world without sin. Okay, cool. Good. Thank you. 
Any other ideas? Peace. Good. Ken. Other ideas? Any other thoughts? Reconciliation. Reconciliation between people, groups. I heard another one. New heaven, new earth. Yeah, there we go. There's the dream. There's the dream. You want to summarize it in a couple words? Dale? New heaven, new earth. Yeah. You're like, I just did summarize it in a couple words. <laughs> Wendy, was that the same as you were going to say? Or was... Usually not. Those are all good ones, and I think all those things make up God's dream. And so when I was, I asked the question when I was studying these dreams from Joseph, and I, and I just said, what's one succinct, where's one place I can find this? And it actually took me to John 17, which I read a minute ago, where Jesus is praying for his disciples. And I noticed a couple things about the prayer. One, his dream looked into the future. So it wasn't just for his disciples. He wasn't just praying for them. He was actually praying for everybody who would, would come, everyone who would follow his disciples. And so if we learn anything about the future in this sermon series, it's that God actually has a plan for the future, right? And that our sovereign God steers the, the course of human history in some mysterious way, moving toward the fulfillment of God's dreams. And so, what is it that God wants for the world? Well, this is what Jesus prayed for, for the world. He prayed for not only those present, but for everyone to come. He also prayed that all people would know that God sent him. This is important. He prayed that all people would know that he and the Father are one. He prayed that his followers would share and participate in God's glory. And finally, my favorite part, that everyone would know that they're deeply loved of God. This is what Jesus says. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus' dream, praying his dream over his disciples and all those that follow, right? And so we can find elements of the things that we shared in, in that dream. And so what a dream for the world that we live in today and for future generations. That God's dream is that all people would come to know God and Jesus Christ, that we would be joined to him, the relational component that Wendy's talking about, um, and that we would forever know that we're deeply loved by our creator. It's a great dream. Joseph's dream is a little bit different. Um, ultimately, uh, his dream, however, is kind of strange. Um, it's a, it sounds, when we read it, it's, it's highly unusual. Um, not everyone, some people take exception to his dream. Um, but what we're going to learn is that this dream actually ultimately preserves this newly forming nation of Israel. All right? So it's, it is pretty important. I wonder, without Joseph's dream, if we get to Jesus's. Something that made me think. If this dream doesn't come to fulfillment, what happens to the people of Israel? Um, we, won't, we don't know, because as we will see, uh, it does. So here we go, from Genesis 37. And I'm, I move around a little bit, because so, it's super long. So, you'll figure. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. Now Israel, who's renamed, Jacob renamed, this is Joseph's dad, he's renamed Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children. Ooh, that's already problematic. Um, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a long robe with sleeves. 
But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Once Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream that I dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. So Joseph went after his brothers and he found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance and before he came near them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him, throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, one of his brothers, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life, Reuben said to them. Shed no blood, throw him in this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with the sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Having a picnic when you throw your brother in a pit, this is incredible. I just, I can't get over this part. They sit down casually to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum and balm and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah, one of his brothers, said to the other brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother, and conceal his blood. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, not lay our hands on him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. How kind of him. <laughs> his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. The word of the Lord. Man, with brothers like that, all the promises of Abraham, the future of the covenant, they all now reside with this one teenage shepherd, Joseph. The conflict is set right from the start. His brothers will not take Joseph's dreams lying down. After all, they've got their own dreams. And I guarantee you those dreams do not include bowing down to their snotty little brother. Okay? So the initial impressions of Joseph, which I'm going to give you, from Genesis. They're not all that promising. Joseph comes across as a bratty little tattletale. Now, I'm an older brother. Any older siblings in here? Yeah? Okay, so we have a few. Older siblings should be able to relate to me on this one. <laughs> Younger siblings are going to deny it, I guarantee it. Every little thing I did as a kid made its way back to my mom and dad. Everything used to drive me absolutely crazy. Joseph is constantly ratting out his older brothers. He's trying to gain his father's favor, and the crazy thing is it actually worked. Joseph was his father's favorite. He flaunts his dreams of superiority right in their faces with images of his brothers bowing down before him. And so Jacob, who was named, renamed Israel for today's text, the father, he's cautious, but he gives his son, the favorite son, the technicolor dream coat. There it is. Donny Osmond. How awesome is that picture? Thank you, Dustin. That is such a great picture. 
imagine, just picture Joseph in that coat. Oh, man. The coat of many colors. Now, here's the thing about the coat. It's not just a nice parting gift. Um, it's also not really given as a practical coat to keep him warm in the winter. It's really simple. It's a garb of rule. It's a symbol that separated Joseph from his brothers, his ordinary brothers. Now, one of the big issues in Genesis is succession. So God was teaching a new way. We've gone over this multiple times in this series. That new way is the passing down of the faith from generation to generation. And Jacob, the dad, he recognizes that it's Joseph who's next in line, not the older brothers. It's another one of these kind of great inversions in the Bible where God topples the customs of these civilizations. He makes the younger brother the successor to the father instead of the rightful successor, older brothers. But what about this coat, aside from being super stylish? <laughs> what about this coat? Well, when I was reading it, I found one really wise author that I read that I just loved this. It was my favorite thing that I read when I was studying this passage. One author said, does the coat really fit him? Does it, does it really make him a ruler? Does it reveal or does it conceal who Joseph really is? I found that to be fascinating because when you put that together, you know, his brothers, they hate this coat. Oh, they, I mean, you can use that strong of a word. They hate the coat and they hate their brother. And so the most fascinating thing I learned, this observation, is that when Joseph finally finds clothes that fit him, the ones that fit him the best, it's not this coat. It's the clothing of foreigners. It's Egyptian clothing that fits Joseph the best. It's his Egyptian clothes that he later is going to don, not this coat, that actually showed him to be the ruler that he was in his dreams. And so the dream is born amidst this kind of hopeless conflict triangle between himself, his brother, and his father. And it's this epic dream that carries the whole narrative of Joseph forward. The reason is pretty simple. As bratty and as unlikable as Joseph may have been, this dreamer was given a dream that truly comes from God. It's God's dream. And the sovereign God of the universe has a way of making dreams a reality. And so his brothers, however, they want to kill the dream. They want to kill the dreamer. Like any of us, they resist being ruled by their younger brother. They interpret their brother's dreams as not God's divine prophecy, but they just kind of interpret Joseph's dreams as his own wishes, his own, he's power hungry, is what his brothers think. And he may have been. The brothers are off tending their flocks. The hate of the brothers triumphs over the love of the father. And because of this ridiculously brightly colored coat, they saw Joseph coming a mile away. And they plot to kill him. They strip him of his coat of rule. They throw him in a pit. And fortunately for him, some cooler heads of his brothers prevail. And they don't end up killing him, but rather sell him for 20 pieces of silver in slavery. And he's headed for Egypt. His dad is obviously inconsolable. He's crushed by the weight of his grief. He believes that his favored son has been torn to pieces by wild animals. The brothers believe that the dream and the dreamer are dead. And so all of us have dreams for ourselves. We dream for our families. We dream for our country. We dream for our world. I like the things we said. Peace. I love these, these dreams that we have for our country and for our world and for our families. We all have these. And sometimes 
Our dreams get smashed by these unforeseen forces. We all go through periods of grief. We experience failure and loss. We see the kind of seeming death of some of our dreams, and all kinds of tomorrows are crushed by the kind of ruthless reality of the todays. And so, church planners, we understand a little bit about the kind of tenuous nature of dreams. Dreams dream for what the church can become. It's up against these kind of seemingly impossible odds. Things like culture changes and scarce resources and church closures and lack of interest by the community. And so it was about seven years ago, God placed this dream of starting this church on my heart. A church that we said would exist for our community and for the world, not just for ourselves. And so at the time, when this was first happening, I'm thinking, this is impossible. The odds are stacked against us. Rick's a Vegas guy. Rick told me that Vegas had the odds at about 100 to 1 that we failed. <laughs> so far. So far, ranking in there. And so many things threatened to kill the dream that a few of us, a team of people, gathered together about five years ago to start this church. That We had many threats. Even after the miracle of opening, there have been constant threats to the shared dream that we have here in this place. And one of the things I've been learning, one of the things I learned from this story, is that it highlights that when a dream, dream comes from God, even the seemingly impossible becomes possible. Right? When When God's involved in the dream, anything is possible. And so this story, Joseph, here today ends in this weird charade where everybody believes the dream and the dreamer are dead. But Joseph, although he was a slave, he was still alive. And with him living, the dream is still alive. The promise of God is still alive. And we'll go there next week. And so this world has a way of trying to crush dreams and dreamers. It made me think about one of our country's most famous dreamers, Martin Luther King Jr. And this story I did not know. We'll see if anyone has heard this before. I did not know it, but I did a little research on his I Have a Dream speech, and the, this, the backstory to it is absolutely fascinating. So it was the night before the March on Washington, 1963. He was actually gathered with his advisors and his speechwriters. And they were seated down together trying to figure out what he was going to say. One of his advisors, his name was Wyatt Walker, he actually said this. He said, do not use the lines about I have a dream. Do not use them. He said, it's too trite, it's too cliche, and you've used it too many times. So, after a range of conflicting opinions from his staff, he says, dismisses them all, and says, I need to be alone, I need to pray about it. He finally goes to sleep at 4 a.m. after working on this all night, And the I Have a Dream section of the speech was nowhere to be found. 250,000 people show up the next day. He stands up to speak, and he stuck to his script. By his own admission, and by all the people in his camp, they said that this speech was not one of his best. He was winding it up. He was feeling like he hadn't landed that knockout punch when a female gospel singer, a good friend of his, was standing behind him. And she yelled at him. She said, Martin, tell him about the dream. He grabbed onto the podium. He took his prepared script, and he set it aside. And she yelled again, Martin, tell him about the dream. 
Now he was assuming his role as a Baptist preacher at that moment when he set that script aside. And one of his friends at that moment, when they saw him do that, actually said, these people don't know it, but they're about to go to church. (laughs) And this is what King said. He said, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. His own speechwriter at that exact moment, the one that encouraged him to not use it, was so mad at King that he cursed. He said, oh, you, and you can fill in the blank. He's using the dream section. Once he started sharing the dream, he never returned to his script, and this dream landed in the hearts of millions of people. Over 50 years later, his dream is still as powerful today as it ever was. It's still at work in the world. It's still somewhat at arm's reach. It's a dream of jobs, of freedom, of an end to racism, a push for civil and economic rights for all people in this country. It may not be fully realized. There may be many obstacles today that stand in this dream's way, but the dream is still alive and well, despite the odds against it. He could have stuck to the script, but he didn't. The dream was too important. The dream is still important today. It made me think this morning when I was on my way in here of hearing the news, listening to the news on the way in, the white nationalist rally, right? Just absolutely mind-boggling stuff. 19 people hurt, 3 people killed. Um, How important is this dream today? Oh, it's important. It's important. Are there obstacles that stand in the way of this dream? Absolutely, yes. And we see some of the ramifications of this dream still at work today in a horrible event that took place yesterday. Also, when I looked at it, I looked around the world a little bit, and I saw that during the protests at the Tiananmen Square, some of us remember this in China, protesters actually held up posters saying that read, I have a dream. The wall that Israel built around the West Bank, around it, on this wall, is written, I have a dream, and this wall is not part of it. The dream is seen in strange places all over the world, in the Budapest subway, murals in Sydney, Australia. But more importantly, this dream is alive in the hearts and minds of real people who today are working to make this dream that this man had a reality. And so his dream would cost him his life. Dreaming epic dreams can be dangerous. Ask Joseph. He's now on his way to Egypt as a slave. But I have to believe that like King's dream for reconciliation and equality for all Americans, I have to believe that this, is a, this was a God-given dream, not just his own dream. We could easily have given up on this church. We would have been a piece of cake. We could have quit when things got tough, but we didn't quit when things got tough because we believe that the source of the dream is God, that God has not quit on us yet. And so the dream is still alive. Now, for those of us who know the Joseph story, the rest of the story, we know that God's dreams are not easily crushed. When things look hopeless, at the end of today's text, it's just a new beginning. It's a new possibility for the God who's behind the scenes, still in control, still making God's dreams a reality. And so our tradition that we come out of, called Reformed tradition, it's always faithful in reminding us that these dreams given to Joseph would eventually find their fulfillment, displaying the sovereignty of the Lord. That even when our situations appear hopeless, 
when our dreams appear to be crushed, God is still God. God is still working out God's purposes or God's dream. And why? Because God wants everyone to know that Jesus was sent by God. This is what Jesus, that Jesus and the Father are one. And then everyone on the face of the earth today would know that they're deeply loved of God. That's a dream we should be able to get behind. At light shine, we're small, but we're an incredibly awesome and small part of God's dream, right? That we share in it, we even participate in it. I can't help but think about our own dreams, our own hopes. What are the possibilities when our dreams line up with God's big dream? that the world would know of God's incredible love in Jesus Christ? What could happen when our dreams line up with that dream? So my hope, my prayer, is that our dreams would align well with God's dream. And may our lives in word and in deed work for God's coming kingdom until its completion. Those are God dreams that cannot be crushed. Because God is good, and God will make those dreams a reality. You join me in prayer. God, you place many dreams on our hearts, some a little wacky, but others that help to guide and shape our futures. God, you have dreams for us that we would know you, that we would know your son Jesus, our one, that we would know that we are deeply loved. Thank you for that reminder today. And may we play a small part in living your dream in this world that others would come to know and to love you. Amen.